Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. Today I'm pleased to be talking to Kurt Ackerman, who is co-founder and executive manager of the civil society organisation, the South African Urban Food and Farming Trust, based in Cape Town. Thank you for joining me today, Kurt, to talk about your work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start with, who is the South African Urban Food and Farming Trust and what do you do? So the SA Urban Food and Farming Trust is a, a civil society organization. We are based in Cape Town and we're established in 2014. And we work through food and farming to strengthen the urban communities in South Africa and the systems that sustain them. We also provide support and, and advocate on behalf of local urban food systems to try to make food fair, good food fair and affordable in our cities. And this includes a number of things. We help grow small-scale emerging farmers who have potential. We also raise funds and make capital investments in urban farms that provide benefits that are social, economic, and environmental to develop communities, strengthen community cohesion and resilience. So what is the big idea behind your approach? It's really to take urban food gardens and urban farms and to really make the most of their potential. It's recognizing that they don't play a primary role in addressing food security issues and hunger, but actually they play a massively important role in developing resilience within fragile communities. So it's really that insight that drives what we do. So can you help us better understand the scale and dimensions of the problem or opportunity you're addressing? Starting with some numbers for Cape Town, please. Yeah, look, I mean, the numbers are, are quite intimidating. So Cape Town is a city of around four and a half million people. It could grow by as much as a million beyond that over the next decade. We already have massive food insecurity. Some three quarters of households, low-income households in, in Cape Town are food insecure. And so right there, we have, we have a massive issue. At the same time, as a developing economy, we have struggled with public health issues of non-communicable diseases, including obesity. So we have over 50% of the population who are considered overweight. Um, we have major malnutrition issues, infant stunting. And so the kind of public health challenges are really quite high. Urban agriculture being seen as a potential response to that, it really doesn't directly address some of these core issues of hunger, malnutrition, and obesity, but it can be a major contributor. Over 90% of the urban farmers, for example, in Cape Town do not have a fully economically viable livelihood from the urban farming. It's supplementary, and understanding that is really important. And also only a fraction of the households in Cape Town are served by the produce that is grown through urban agriculture, something like four or five percent from, from the recent data. So 
not only is the issue quite big and, and intimidating in terms of the facts, but also the, the role of urban agriculture is quite small when lined up against that. But there are really important roles that urban agriculture can, can play to address some of these issues. I think the most important thing to understand about Cape Town and, and a lot of South Africa is just the staggering levels of inequality that are a reality. That's largely a legacy of colonialism and the apartheid system. And it's been exacerbated by the post-apartheid kind of economic program that's been rolled out over the last 25 years. And some people refer to that as a, a neoliberal approach, but the, the, the consequence, regardless of how it's named, is that it's made the inequality worse. And so our food system is really as segregated and unequal as the rest of society. So we have um, quite a privileged, overwhelmingly white population that eats really very well. And we have a very large, predominantly brown and black population that, that struggles to, to make ends meet financially and is often trading off some of the basics like food in order to pay school fees or pay for transportation to and from work. We also have a historic growth of our city that has reasonable density in some areas, the historically older parts, but then it, the city sprawls quite a lot. And what used to be the arable land around the city has historically been taken up by farms that are growing for export. So our most productive land that is in proximity to the city that could be on a commercial scale is growing grapes and growing fruit that go into wine and fruit for export. So we have challenges of this legacy of agriculture that weren't intended to be kind of entrenching the inequality, but that's the system that we find, find ourselves with. And I think one of the other things is that food in South Africa is something that is, that is guaranteed by the South African constitution. There is a right to food in South Africa, but that right is not pursued the way that other human rights and other civil rights are in South Africa. It's on kind of a slow burn and people don't protest over food in the way that, that they do over other, other issues in South Africa. And the division of our government responsibility within the constitution into local, provincial and national government spheres means that the different government institutions can often point to the other spheres and say, it's their job, it's their job. And there is no ministry of food there is no one place within government that policy and ownership and budget reside. So tackling these challenges becomes quite complicated when one looks at the systemic issues that can be shaped by policy. And so what is the role of the city and what can it do at that level? So that's a very good question. And it's kind of where we are right now in our engagement with the city and with others. Um, I mean, there's good research done around the world of examples elsewhere that the city is trying to, to draw on and learn from. And the city of Cape Town isn't alone in trying to develop its, its policy around food and urban agriculture. I think the most important thing that the city can do is recognize that it does have an important role to play. Food doesn't have to be isolated as a particular silo of policy or activity. So just having a broad understanding is the most important thing. And then there are specific use tools that cities have and the city of Cape Town has. One is land use and zoning permissions. So where are and aren't lands protected for agriculture? Where is it encouraged and where is it discouraged? Those kinds of things can really be massively important as a tool. Also, I would say that things like regulations for trading. So um, we have informal traders, we have hawkers, kind of where is fresh food sold and by whom 
and at what hours and those kinds of things can also massively be affected by the municipality's regulations. So those are probably the two simplest ones to articulate. But there is a lot the city can do across all of its different areas of activity to impact the food system. And we'll be speaking to some representatives from the city later on in this episode to get their perspectives as well. Kurt, coming back to your work now, who are the small-scale urban farmers you work with? So we work with a range of different kinds of farmers. And for the most part, we, we connect with, with farmers and also refer to them as food gardeners, depending on, on how they self-identify. Ones who have already established their farms and food gardens. We're not going out and um, working in communities where we create these things for people or create them and then call people to join them. What we've learned is that we really need to work with um, people where they have already taken the initiative and made the decision that this is a good thing for them to do. Because we know that these farms don't typically provide economically viable livelihoods, there needs to be a context for these, these farmers to support themselves where they've chosen that food gardening is, is valuable and important to them. And what we try to do is engage to support them if they're interested. So sometimes that support is helping find um, lower cost, higher quality, less chemical dependent uh, farming inputs like compost and seeds and manure and those kinds of things. Other times they just may need help um, even with language, filling out forms to get some funding from the municipality. Their English may not be strong enough to, to speak to the government jargon that sometimes gets involved or those kinds of things. Sometimes it's also networking farmers together so that they can collectively purchase inputs or, or support one another in terms of yeah, other issues, pest management, market access, and so on. So we very much try to have a context-sensitive, context-specific approach. And what that means is that we've tended to work in, in different communities, spatially over time. Um, so we have worked with a, a quite sizable food garden on the grounds of a psychiatric hospital, in more of a middle-class, working-class part of Cape Town called Mitchell's Plain. Um, we've worked with schools in some quite difficult parts of town, a lot of problems with gang violence and, and physical safety. So school-based food gardens and using the food garden as a link between the school and the household, having seedlings and container gardens going back and forth between the school and the household because the safety of growing in a more public space just isn't there working with, with small food gardens that are adjacent to like a, a fruit stall um, in another community where the group of owners of this fruit stall are also Rastafarians. And so part of their spiritual and um, cultural practices involve growing food, but they also are working to, to play a more kind of catalytic role in the health of the community. So supporting them with programs that can, can reach out to kids and, and school groups. And in more affluent communities. I mean, our first farm uh, was in quite an affluent suburb that, that got us going. And there the issues aren't really food security, but more things of resource use and, and waste and awareness of the, the impact that people with this kind of privilege can have across Cape Town and on the food system generally. So it's quite a diverse set of communities and, and sizes and formats of a food garden and also a range of different potential outcomes from your work. One of the inclusion dimensions we're looking at is how our case studies are taking an integrated systems-wide approach. What does this look like for your work? In terms of inclusion, I think the most important thing is that we're going into other people's communities and we're supporting what they're doing. So it's not us choosing who's participating, but rather engaging with, with projects 
um, in, in communities and people who have wanted to do this. So they're actually choosing to include us in, in what they're doing. And so the spirit of the whole thing really starts in that way. And we also, in, in engaging with different projects, help share the insight that we've had that these kind of urban farms and food gardens are some of the most radically inclusive activities that one can imagine because it, food is a universal, right? Everybody eats. There's no reason to be excluded. We often say, if you eat, you're in. And once people have, I mean, it's a simple thought, but not everyone may have, have had it occur to them. And once you're aware of it, there's a reason to connect with everyone. That doesn't mean everyone has the skills to be a farmer or, or food should be distributed to everyone equally. Some people have greater needs and greater abilities and, and so on. But the fact that one would be exclusive just starts to not make sense. Um, so I think in, inclusion is really at the heart. And, and a lot of the power of these kinds of, of projects comes from their radically inclusive nature. Another systems dimension is all the agencies, organizations, and people involved in the approach. Who are all the different types of key stakeholders involved in your work? And what are some of the main ways you bring them together? Yeah, there are a lot. And it's also context specific. I mean, if a farm is on the grounds of a school, then obviously the school and the provincial government and so on are involved in the school governing body. Or if it's in a park, then it's city park. So who the landowner is will determine that. Um, but we work with a wide range of government departments as partners. So the Department of Agriculture, we've had support from the Department of the Premier, and those are both in our provincial government, um, the city of Cape Town, a number of departments, environmental management, urban sustainability, the resilience department, um, sub-councils, city parks. They're all important role players and partners with us. We also work with civil society organizations, community-based organizations in each community that really depends on where they are and, and who's active. We've had quite a large surge in community activism with the COVID-19 pandemic and the response to the lockdown. And so that's been a really interesting and uh, an important element that's grown, the strengthening of these community-based organizations. Most of them have already existed, and people from other communities have found ways to provide energy and resources to, to support them. So these community-based organizations are quite valuable and important. Even if in some cases they don't play a primary role, the fact that they're there and can, can relate into the community is really very important. And then we're part of a community of practice that has been convened by uh, the, the South African Center of Excellence in Food Systems Governance that's been running for the last couple of years. And that's been really important for us to find other like-minded civil society organizations who might be working in aspects of public health or gender-based violence or in informal settlements with human rights or other kinds of programs and where we find overlap and common areas of interest and we can hear one another's perspectives on these issues. And so while we may not partner always directly with them, we have the opportunity to hear from them and about them and bounce ideas or issues off of them so that there is a, a reduction of conflict and increase of alignment, if I can put it that way. And then most recently, again, with the, the pandemic and the lockdown, we've become more closely involved with a network of food gardens that are geographically close to our, our initial farm in Aranyazicht. And that is seven, I think it's seven now, food gardens that we connect with and try to support in different ways. We've also worked through other structures. We've, we've convened events where we brought different people together to talk about issues and share their perspectives. In particular, food dialogues is something that we've, we've done now twice. Um, we're part of a city to city 
partnership built around the sustainable development goals, and that's between the city of Cape Town and the city of Aachen in Germany. And that's been going for 20 years. We've been involved for the last three, and that partnership facilitates links between civil society organizations. So while the cities have links themselves, through those links, they try to connect civil society organizations between the different cities, but the consequence is also that civil society organizations in the respective cities are also brought together. So it's another mechanism that we can use to, to connect. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So with this useful background from Kurt and at the point we've been talking about the different stakeholders involved in the Trust's work, I've also taken some time out to talk to a number of their partners to hear their perspectives on the value that a civil society organisation such as the Trust can bring to the work of running a city like Cape Town and the importance of wider collaboration for innovation learning and scale in cities. First, I spoke to two representatives from the city of Cape Town, Tamsin Farragher and Alderman Marion Nevout asking them how Kurt's experiences from the work of the Trust are able to add value to important processes at the city level. I'm Tamsin Farrier. I'm the Principal Resilience Officer at the City of Cape Town. There is a food action in the resilience strategy and we're very busy preparing a food programme. That's my interest. Last year we kicked off a process to start the review of an urban, urban agriculture policy. And part of that work was trying to understand what we'd done effectively as a city and what we'd achieved during that time. That process is now with the policy people, but we, we set up a, a working group as a way of pulling people in and, and using the expertise. And Kurt was part of that process. In the food and the water focus group, he was able to you know, share, share some of the challenges of urban farming and water. You know, most farmers use boreholes um, and the city of Cape Town is, is starting to rely, not too heavily, but in part on groundwater resources. So understanding uh, any push to scale urban agriculture up has to be done within the context of that broader sort of water need across the city. So that was really, really great. Kurt was also part of the Rockefeller Food Vision proposal. I'm sorry to say we didn't win, but we got through to the last round, which was great. And, you know, he was able to draw on a wide range of people that we wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And the great thing about people working in the food space is that they all know each other, they all like each other, which is even better because it means that, you know, there's a comfort in, you know, you want to talk about that, talk to that person. Um, so there's an amazing network that has built up over, and Kurt can correct me, but I think the last 10 to 15 years, which has made it so much easier for the city to kind of get into that space and get active quite quickly and understand that space quite quickly because there are really people working there, networked, they know who's who in the zoo. So that's been brilliant. And then the food dialogues most recently. Um, we weren't a particularly active partner in the food dialogues, but we were certainly a promoter and a, and a supporter of them. And there were definitely some, some topics that were a little bit definitely off-center, which was great. Uh, you know, as government, we tend to take the safe road. But Kurt was quite, not firm, but he had, there was definitely a vision there. And you kind of had to respect that and support it rather than trying to pull it back into the safe realm of what are the people going to think about that? And, you know, it could, could be quite controversial. Food is controversial and you do need to make a space for that controversy to, to air itself. 
And I think that's one of the things that Kurt does really well is, is make that space. So yeah, he's been a, just, I think through COVID as well, there were some regulations that came out in the beginning that were quite, quite difficult. Not quite, they were very difficult. I mean, people, people were battling, um, the farmers were battling. Uh, they couldn't get to their markets, they couldn't get to their fields. And having people in the farming network, the urban farming network, who could sensitize us to what was happening out there made a really big difference in terms of trying to understand how the city could be responding and setting up those linkages and saying, well, has everybody found a market? And if they haven't, please let us know so that we can try and find a way. You know, we don't want people losing out on incomes. We don't want food rotting. And so we were able to draw on Kurt's networks, which, which the city just doesn't have that access to. So you were talking earlier about you know, the, 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 the valuable contribution that civil society kind of organizations bring. And that's definitely part of it is having that access to real information. The city's a big organization and I don't think people always quite know how to navigate their way in. So having people planted out there makes it makes those relationships a lot easier. And it meant that we were able to, I think, do some good work through COVID and also just understanding what some of the challenges were we were able to try and find ways in the city of doing things a little bit differently. I'm Marianne Nivot. I'm the MACO member, which is actually in real terms the advisor to the mayor on the functional areas of environment and spatial planning and land use management. So the city has been engaging in food security quite for a long time now. And we are also for a long time at a ward level or localized level, uh, we were trying to initiate small scale farming farm gardens with the emphasis on trying to just supplement the food from the poorer household. But with the COVID exercise, we found that there was an enormous niche for, for the smaller player in this sector. And we've strengthened our relationship with a, uh, also a city initiative called the, the Philippi Development Agency, the Pedi Agency, which now will then give us the network in which we will be able to take those extras from the hands of the people farming, survival farming or small-scale farming, which is enabling us to make it a, a virtual circle that no food goes unused or, or rotten at the time. And that brings me to the work of the trust. Usually you get a partner that are willing to partner with you with the physical things. They would advise and they do the scientific analysis of the land and that they will advise around the cultural task. But there's not really uh, people that are able to help us with formulating a policy and then Cape Town have chosen to be a part and parcel of our resilience strategy, which make it a little bit more complicated. And I must say, I think the trust are able to, to play an essential role in helping us and guiding us on the contents of a policy like that, which I will be thankful for ever if we can at least have a policy at the end of next year. Within our city, we don't have the specialist on, on this uh, subject. We are all enablers. And the trust from my side is forming that gap to uh, help us to get the specialist knowledge on board 
and also to identify the, the possibilities of, of growth and support. I do think that the whole uh, sector of urban agriculture within a, a city environment are much more complicated than usual because we remember we, we are a drought-stricken city and we need to be very careful on how we utilize water and that should be part and parcel of our um, research going into what's available options we have for the policy framework. But the partnership with the trust especially allow us that leeway to do some experimental work on it. The Potsdam is a city-owned site close to the sewage works. So it's an ideal site of land that, you know, you, you normally doubt where we can use it for, that it's not unpleasant for residents or that you, you complicated your own decision making. So when the opportunity came that we can provide it as an experimental site where we can experiment with new things, new technologies, new thinking around uh, waste to energy, new thinking of um, uh, lessen the, the burden of waste or how can we um, reuse the uh, waste. Uh, this site uh, was proposed. And also uh, the trust involvement in, in getting and setting us up. So I really want to, to tell you this is going to be a game changer in Cape Town to ensure that we are providing a livable, resilient environment for our citizens to, spy, uh, to play. I really think that Portsdam is going to be the playground to do the experimental side of that. And then whatever experiment is successful, we also need to design the policy to underpin the decision-making around it that will enable us. So it's the development of the Portsdam site is crucial for us taking it into the future. That's great. So they're clearly a very important knowledge and policy and networking partner, but also to enable further innovation that you're going to be doing together. Then I spoke to a representative from the Conrad Adenauer Foundation's Strong Cities 2030 initiative, an urban learning network supporting both the work of the trust, as well as this very innovation report, about how this innovative work can be of interest to others. My name is Christina Teichmann. I'm project coordinator for the Strong City 2030 initiative. Strong Cities have looked at this project that is located here in Cape Town, the South African Urban Food and Farming Trust project. And um, this is one of the projects that we think might be very interesting to our network and where we think there are really uh, innovative um, approaches and lessons that, that will be benefit other cities around the globe. The, the innovation that I see in this project, it's not so much about uh, the urban farming itself, because urban farming has been done all over the, the world for many, you know, for many, many years. The transferability and the innovation that I see that would and will benefit other cities is really the, the kind of design principles this project is based on. And when I speak about design principles, I speak about this partnership between a local government, which in this case is the city of Cape Town, an NGO, which is the South African Urban Food and Farming Trust, 
then obviously the community, which is very, very important in, in this whole uh, setup and uh, in the success of this project. Then also the involvement of the tertiary institution, the University of Cape Town, and obviously also other stakeholders and partners, like for example, the city of Aachen is a partner city of Cape Town. So this partnership and the collaboration between so many different stakeholders, that's really the innovation and also the lesson that can be really learned from other cities where I think every party brings in, you know, the, the kind of adds a benefit and uh, to this whole project. And uh, I think the lesson that I think is also important is that a project like this also informs policy making. And I think Aldermani would make that quite clear that uh, a city also depends on voices from the ground, you know, to make policy. And I think this is a very nice example where uh, policy is not made in a kind of ivory tower, but it listens to the people, to the community, to the insights of a civil society organization. And this is a lesson uh, I'm sure cities uh, and people, local politicians and urban experts can learn from, from this um, project. Thanks, Christina. And I think it's also coming out as a very important lesson for civil society organisations as well across all of our case, case studies, including this one. We have a separate mini episode on the Strong Cities 2030 initiative in this series. So please check that out to find more. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 innovation report on civil society innovation and urban inclusion. So Kurt, we're back with you now that we've heard from some of your key stakeholders and supporters. What would you describe as the main inclusive outcomes which you've achieved so far? I would start with our, our first project, the Iranian City Farm. That was established back in 2012. I was one of the co-founders with one of a group of five people that initially became dozens of, of community volunteers. Iranian is a, an affluent, leafy, residential community that is adjacent to the, the central city part of Cape Town. And it has, it's an historic area, and this farm is on the grounds of what was historically a farm. So there's kind of a cultural and heritage link to this. And it was started on a derelict bowling green by myself and these other community members who were really motivated to try to build something within our community each of us for different personal reasons, but together to, to take what had become a trouble spot within our community. This abandoned Bowling Green was kind of a site of illegal dumping and there were vagrants sleeping there and drug deals and, and those kinds of things. Um, and that had been cleaned up by our neighborhood watch and allowed for this, this urban food garden to be started. Um, and we jumped in eagerly as volunteers and tapped into really a latent interest that urban residents had in kind of finding the village within the city, if I can put it that mm. way. If I use my own personal example, what I was looking for and what my family was looking for is a way to raise our, our son in an urban community, but where he's connected to his neighbors and to the ground, to the place where, where there's a, a kind of belonging that is often absent in urban communities. And that, that absent sense of belonging is made worse in South Africa, South African cities, because the way of, of housing is often behind walls and security 
wires and, and people have a lot of fear because of the inequality that drives a lot of anxiety and perceptions of high levels of crime. So people live even more isolated lives. And the Iranian City Farm was a way of drawing people out. Um, and the response was amazing. We had tens of thousands of hours of volunteer time given over the first two years. Um, and it's only continued uh, since then. So I would say that's, that's probably the, the first one is recognizing the power that these kinds of projects can have. And then out of this initial farm also grew almost of its own accord, um, a farmer's market. And that started initially because people wanted what was being grown and there were only a couple of bunches of spinach. We couldn't feed the community by any means, but we were able to tap into other people within our network who could provide a few extra boxes of grapes and some other things. And, and quickly a small farmer's market started in the park adjacent to, to the farm. And if one fast forwards a number of years, uh, it became uh, too big for the park and had to move and is now on a 3000 square meter site that is in a, a major kind of mixed residential commercial area at the VNA waterfront in Cape Town. And just prior to the pandemic was hosting between nine and 12,000 people on a weekend. It's open Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and that supports over 40 local farmers. There are over 80 artisanal food traders, producers who are there that supports over 300 jobs. There's over 40 million rand of economic activity that flows through that market on an annual basis and has become quite a sizable node in our food system and voice for the more affluent consumers in particular in terms of recognizing how their choices make a difference in the, the food system, not only in supporting the farmers, but in terms of food justice, in terms of health and, and so on. So uh, those have been probably the two, the two biggest and you know, the rest of the outcomes are in the projects that we're doing now, how we've designed them. And uh, again, those kinds of things have been a bit interrupted by, to be honest, first a drought that we suffered through a couple of years ago, and now we've had a pandemic. So we've had a couple yeah, of, of setbacks. And the last one that I would just mention is the, the market garden at the psychiatric hospital, which is called the Lentihure Market Garden. And that's something that we um, supported, had been established by the, the hospital there, so that the, the forensic patients at the hospital would have therapeutic benefits from working with their hands in the soil, and they work with the psychiatrists and the occupational therapists on that farm. Um, and that has enabled those um, forensic patients to have more rapid therapeutic benefits and many of them to re-engage with their communities, whereas previously they were, they were not permitted to leave the hospital grounds. And it's also become a site for bringing outsiders under controlled circumstances into the farm and to understand a bit more about mental health and to try to address stigma and to more normalize people who face different kinds of health challenges. Sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're, they're mental, sometimes they're long-lasting, sometimes they're, they're only a short period, acute issues. So that's something that we were very proud to be able to support. Most of the, the inclusive benefit had already been conceived of and driven by the psychiatrists and the occupational therapists at the hospital but um, we were able to support them and to help them realize that. And I think that's, a, that's another example of a powerful partnership that's worked quite well. To find out more about this project, the Lentahir Market Garden, I also spoke with Tony Kalule, who works for the Trust's partner, the Spring Foundation. I wanted to find out more about the garden, the role it plays in the community, and how Kurt and the Trust have been supporting it. 
Hi, my name is Tony Kulule. I'm working for the Swim Foundation, the Linda Red Garden. I work as a production manager here. Uh, we're working under the psychiatric hospital. West and West, we work together with the patients who are under the supervision. Then we train them how to work, how to do, how to plant the vegetables. And then to be also to be independent, critical thinkers, and then to be self-reliant, and also to do things on their own. That is the thing that the garden is doing. Sometimes they will ask me, which is a holiday, please can you come to work? They enjoy life. If they are inside, they will sleep. After they finish to eat by 10 o'clock, they, I mean by 11, they must sleep until 2 o'clock. To them, the one who are working in the garden, they are so happy just because they get a relief to be out of the, how can I call it, a suspected journey to the world to be out. That's because they go back to the lunch time. Their lunch time started by half past 11. But if you can go there to the beehive, the way they go firstly to sign, by 12 o'clock they are already there. Then they will wait until 1 o'clock to come to the garden. That's it. But you will see them, they are so happy. But even no matter other one sick, you said to him, please can you go back to the ward? They are not so happy. They don't like to go back to the ward. They want to work no matter have a flu or what. They want to be out to the ward. Also, we did some donations around here in Mississippi to the community soup kitchens and the crash and some other people are around. And then there are some patients also come outside. They come to learn and then get training. That's a part of the psychiatric gardens. We are trying to promote the organic food to people to know, to eat healthy food around. The garden is doing the organic vegetables. We are selling the vegetables. We were selling before the vegetables to the Oranian visit farm market and also to sell them to Roger Austin plus some different kind of the other people, individuals who buy from us. Ted Ackerman was a part of the a trust that helped the Spring Foundation to establish the Lindakia Market Garden. When we arrived here, this place was just a, a grass, a field, with empty with nothing. And we started in the ground, we used a fork and everything, it was a hard labor, and then we did all of those things. They were keeping and supporting to come to look the place, buying some vegetables from us, and then sending some compost, come to help to bring some other volunteers, and all of those things. And like now, we don't have the market. And then he said to me, he's organizing for us to sell to another companies around Cape Town, to another organic uh, market. And I also asked Tony, as both an urban farmer and activist, why he thinks this is important and to share his vision for urban farming in the city of Cape Town. Urban farming that's showing that there are other things that all the society, we can be together and then we work together as a family, the brothers and the sisters. It's a, a good thing to show in other people outside that we can change the world. There are some few people they would like to do that and then to change all the things around in the world. But uh, meaning it's a, a good thing. It's just a good impact and then it's a part of the awareness. And then other ones, like, I wish we can have a, a group of the people we can sit together as environmentalists and the activists who sit and then we chat from there. We make a good thing for, like, uh, to have some uh, gardens around the west and west in Cape Town. I won't say west and Cape West, firstly in Cape Town. It's just to change the uh, mindset of the people that we can look the other way, other things in life, how to move and then to survive. All of those things, sometimes they can change the society. How do we live now in this days?
So coming back to COVID-19, you've talked a bit about this already, but what are some of the other adaptations you've had to make? The pandemic is one thing, and then the lockdown is another. And of course, they're related. The lockdown is in response to the pandemic, but the pandemic has driven some changes, and then the lockdown has driven others. And we've had in South Africa quite a, a severe lockdown um, initially that has gradually been lifted. One of the, the things that we've had to, to realize is that the food production work that we do in, or that, that we do or that we support has been allowed to continue unabated through the pandemic and the lockdown, that the production of food was seen as an essential service, regardless of the scale. Household food gardens even, you know, there's no issue in terms of the lockdown of being able to travel to and from your food garden. But the ones that are outside of a, a single household, you know, they've been recognized as essential. Now, there have been challenges in different parts of town. The transport system has been, has been locked down. The the multi-passenger um, taxis that minibus taxis that are common ways for people to get around in Cape Town were were restricted in terms of occupancy and public transportation was an issue. So there were limits, but there was no barrier to continuing to grow, harvest, and sell. And that has allowed many of these projects to carry on, unlike other small businesses and community organizations and practices that have really struggled. So it's also brought an awful lot of attention on urban farming, food gardening, the food system, the market that we founded, and, and so on. And sometimes, I mean, th that's been most welcome, but we've sometimes had to do work to educate people in what the potential of urban food gardens and urban farming really is, where initial thought was, hey, we need food, let's grow it. That's not really a viable response to massive food insecurity. And the food insecurity that I mentioned previously, the statistics, were prior to the pandemic. So something like half of all the households in Cape Town during the pandemic are food insecure, and, and many of them much more extreme forms of food insecurity. So there's been a lot of interest, but we've had to engage quite vigorously to help the energy that people want to put into addressing issues in the food system to go where they're actually going to make a meaningful difference. Planting a lot of new food gardens isn't going to help feed people, and it's certainly not going to feed them soon. Mm -hmm. um, it takes months to grow the food and, and so on. But it has meant that we've engaged with a range of civil society partners and government entities in much more intensive and open ways where uh, the pandemic is something that no one has had to respond to previously. And so a lot of the barriers to who the experts were and, and kind of we're government and you're civil society or we're funded and you guys are barriers and full of red tape, those things were diminished quite substantially and allowed for kind of partnerships and relationships to develop in ways that I think would have taken a long time and may not have, have happened. So um, that's been quite, quite helpful. Also, the response was to the emergency, which is emergency food provisioning. Hungry people need to be fed, but that is not a fix for an unjust and unequal food system. So a lot of energy going into keeping people fed, which is really important, but all of those resources are not going to address the systemic issues that, that underlie the problem. So we've had to engage, again, quite energetically to encourage the response to go beyond just the emergency food provisioning, but to add on top of that kind of infrastructure and other sorts of systemic change that will help address the vulnerability to food insecurity in the first place. And then we've also taken advantage of the raised consciousness overall of the vulnerabilities in our food system 
to um, educate some of the more affluent, more privileged people around our food system, what drives the injustice, what drives these different issues. And that's been done in, in a number of ways, primarily you know, using social media channels and other kinds of, of opportunities. But we also hosted quite a substantial online event called the Food Dialogues that, that had a lot of public attention and generate a lot of content and awareness around just this issue. It's great that there's this renewed space and awareness in some of the system level conversations. How would you describe your work as disrupting the system or sector and really a challenge to the status quo? Ironically, I think one of the, the most disruptive things that we can do is by helping people with certain levers or resources to have a, a, a clear understanding of the actual role and impact of urban agriculture. The perception that people can grow their own food to feed themselves is not only factually wrong, and in fact, there is no peer-reviewed report that shows a statistically significant impact on food security that is caused by urban agriculture in any major city in the world. And I checked that fact earlier this year in January. So to my knowledge, that, that remains true. But even if there are one or two examples, the reality is that people in cities growing their own food within the city to feed themselves is just practically not possible. That doesn't mean that there can't be a contributor towards the food that people eat and that that food isn't important nutritionally, that it isn't a source of added resilience and so on. But it's framing the role that urban agriculture can play within the food system that is really quite, quite important. And the fact that one might want to talk about nutrition security over and above food security is sometimes a real eye-opener for, for policymakers or for, for other NGOs who are trying to, to address these underlying issues. So that's, I mean, that's a major part of it, helping people recognize what the real impact is. In addition to these urban farms not directly addressing food security, what they do do is they bring people together. And that coming together and achieving something that is tangible and visible that shows their agency of collective action is a very powerful tool for communities at a grassroots level. And that's the other thing that's disruptive. We don't need to wait for the whole system to change from the top down. Our food system is so deeply tied into systems of transport, international finance, on and on, it, it, health, education. It, it's a massive system to try to change. And in the meantime, um, people grow up, grow old, get sick, take jobs, you know, all those kinds of things. So the fact that these urban farms can be sites of response to this at a local level is important. So by response, the disruption is not to say, hey, we can grow our own food. And so even though this food system inflicts on us as an under-resourced, disadvantaged community, we will take it on ourselves to address that injustice. That, that's, that's not the proper response. The system is structurally in, unjust. And to put the burden of addressing that justice at the hands of the victim is not what we're talking about in, term, in terms of agency. But these people still need to eat and they still need to, to get on with their lives and have an improved quality of life. And that improved quality of life can come in part from these food gardens because people in the community can find one another. They can work on a piece of ground in the community together. They can protect that piece of ground. They can improve the soil health. They can improve the biodiversity. They can green that space. They can create a safe space where they can bring their toddlers 
perhaps, where in, in some communities there are issues with gender-based violence and the women who work these community food gardens and farms can touch base with one another daily. And if someone doesn't show up or someone shows up and looks to have been battered, there's a way of connecting and following up on that. There's a, a community that has come together around turning a derelict piece of ground into a green space that is healthy and contributing to their community. And it gives them an understanding of the agency they have to do other things like deal with shoddy policing or poor street lights or potholes or a lack of trees in their community or a corrupt ward counselor or whatever it is, they suddenly realize their power that by growing turnips together, ironically, that they can come to realize that they actually do have more agency than they, they might have thought. So these are all ways in which at a grassroots level, we can seed this kind of good trouble this good disruption that um, allows people to be more, yeah, more active in determining their, their own fate and future. I like that, seeding, seeding good disruption. So in terms of seeding good disruption for yourself, for, for the trust uh, as an organization and how you've had to continuously innovate um, through your work, could you talk about that as a, as a small, small organization and how you've had to continue to be creative? Yeah, I think that's one of the more difficult things that we've had to, to learn. Um, and it's a lesson that's been taught to us. You know, I would like to say that we founded our, our organization saying, hey, we're just going to have to do this and that and the other thing. And, but it's just a reality that, that we faced and we've learned from it and, and rolled with it. I think there are a couple of, of aspects to that. We've had to, to stop doing certain things that we used to do. Sometimes it, it could be a program that is, is no longer viable. For example, we used to run a, a veg box subscription program from the Aranyazik city farm, and it no longer became, it became no longer financially viable for us to do it. So after five years, we, we had to stop. And there were other routes for the food grown from these micro farms and smallholder farms to get to, to local people. And we had to recognize that other people were doing it better and they were doing it in ways that were aligned with the similar kinds of principles and that we would just need to stop doing what we were doing and allow those other people to, to take it on and we can focus our efforts where we can make a bigger difference. We also spent a lot of time and energy raising money and getting permissions to do a sizable new food garden on the grounds of a school. And over time in the face of, of drought in leadership change and other kinds of issues, that project just was no longer as meaningful as it would have been had we been able to pull it off when we initially got the permission and the funding. The, the prevalence of urban farms across Cape Town and the, the kind of benefit that would come from establishing a new, even a high profile one that commands a lot of attention and that was, was quite well resourced and so on, the benefits from that weren't as great as they would have been three years earlier. And so we've been rechanneling the resources to other sites and other other projects where there can be a greater benefit given where things are now. And you know, those, are, those are a couple of, of examples. We also, um, in starting our, our market, spent a lot of time chasing the growth of that market. It became the tail wagging the dog, in mm -hmm. fact. But at a certain point, the market got to be too big for us. Our trustees are not retailers and, and people who are active in kind of those more private sector competitive spaces. You know, once you have 60 traders and you're buying from 40 farmers and you're supporting 10 or 12,000 customers on a weekend, you're running a big retail operation, even if it's driven from a nonprofit motive. 
and we found we were getting distracted, pulled away from our, our core mission and becoming retailers and running a market venue. So we made the tough decision to actually spin out and sell off that market, um, which we did in December of 2017. And we went through a process that chose someone who was ethically aligned and was still supportive of all of the, the same kinds of principles, but who had the entrepreneurial drive and resources and networks to really make that market the most that it could be rather than be constrained by a nonprofit board of, of farmers and retired teachers and, and uh, activists and so on. So these are just some of the ways that we've had to learn to let things go. So you've made changes in what you do to focus your direct impact in the city. How does scaling up the lessons from your work come into the equation? To be honest, I'm not sure how much scale we've been able to achieve as yet. You know, from 2014, we're now in our sixth year. We have been delayed on one of the major projects, as I mentioned, from drought and, and, and pandemic. Um, so this, I think, is one of our, our, not weakest areas, but I would like to see more progress in this area from us. And it's where, where our big focus is. We've developed, well, to support this, everything that we do, we try to find lessons that can help contribute to scale. And the things that we do, we try to develop so that they can scale. And scale can take a number of different forms though. Sometimes scale can be coming up with a model or a template and being able to then replicate that in different spaces. But what we've learned is that the context for urban farming is so different. Each farm, who the landowner is, how big it is, what the security issues are, access to water, what the community volunteers, other associations and organizations involved, it's just, there is no model that we found that just works. So in terms of the urban agriculture scale, what we've come up with is, is a set of, of principles, what we call design principles that have emerged from this realization of the difference and of every community in the context. And there are a set of 15 design principles built around five different impacts that we found are common across time and space and geography and culture and, and so on. And our work right now is to test that premise. So we've worked with um, academics to do the research to develop these design principles. Um, we've got a set of indicators. We've been challenged by the viability of measuring these indicators. So finding proxies for these indicators that on the one hand can be measured affordably and consistently, but on the other hand are credible proxies for what we'd really like to measure um, has been a challenge. And that's what we're now piloting. And our, our hope is that we'll have some baseline figures on this. I don't know if we'll get it by the end of this year, but soon. And then we'll feel comfortable going out and talking about what these principles are with some data to back them up. So we'll look out for that coming soon. And finally, what are your main takeaways for other organizations working in complex urban settings? I, I think the the biggest takeaway for us is we've got to be real in working with things the way that they are. Um, you know, we, we don't come with a preferred approach or um, with an agenda other than to try and do what works and not only to figure out ourselves what works, but to take cognizance of the academic research and the experience of others and to make a practical benefit with, with the people that we're working with. So it's not that we don't have longer term views, but to, to come to a project and say, hey, we think you could be this is something that we don't do. 
we come to them and say, tell us your story. Let's get to know each other. Maybe we can help you think of ways that it could be better um, and that you contribute in certain ways. And maybe we have resources, networks can raise money and so on to help you get there. And our, our real goal is, is that if we have a network of nodes that are more resilient in, in these ways, that that network then is where the real change starts to happen. So that there is change on a community scale, but with these nodes of change across diverse communities in a city, then we're really in a position to, to drive some systemic change. So we try not to be prescriptive, but rather responsive to, to the conditions. And then also a lesson is that these kinds of projects are by their very nature fragile. I mean, both our work and also the, the food gardens and the farms that we work with. We've had the benefit of, of collaborating with some, some researchers who study urban food projects around the world, particularly in the global south. They're based at the, the University of Stuttgart. Um, one in particular, one of the, the um, PhD students was with us for a while. We were talking about all kinds of examples from Indonesia and from Morocco and Tunisia and, and South America and so on. And it is just so common for these projects to, to disappear, to just collapse. They tend to exist in marginal spaces. Um, they tend to be run by volunteers. They tend to be in under-resourced communities. Um, they tend to be disruptive and to get um, under the skin of the people who benefit from the status quo. They tend to be poorly understood, and so people can often feel threatened by them. And recognizing that vulnerability, I think, is really very important, that we may only have a brief time on this earth, if I can put it that way. You know, we're fortunate as the SA Urban Food and Farming Trust um, that we've been going since 2014, and we're still going. There have been a number of times that we may well have collapsed, and I imagine that into the future we may face that risk again. And that's just kind of the nature of the beast. We've got to, to embrace that and make the most of, of the time that we have. And if it turns out that we do kind of collapse or what we are now dissolves into something else, that that becoming of the next thing is not necessarily bad. We, we can't be fearful of, of that way of being in the world. It's kind of the space that we've chosen to occupy. So while you do have that time, what are your future ambitions and how can we keep in touch? So we had the opportunity to take an event that we were planning to do in 2020 anyway, called the Food Dialogues, and to move it online. And it became quite a powerful event for us. It just wrapped up at the end of August. And we had an approach to conversation, to dialogue around our food system that brought stakeholders together from diverse perspectives and diverse voices. So the goal of the Food Dialogues was really to bring the kinds of voices together that often aren't heard to not only the marginalized voices, but to have a platform where there's an equality of time and prominence and to give each of those different voices a chance to be heard and then to speak to one another. And so we structured this around five themes that were taking cognizance of the pandemic and the lockdown. So we had the food in crisis, food politics, food and health, food and culture and food and economics. And in each one of those, we had a number of speakers who participated in real-time webinars, basically 90-minute panel discussions that were moderated. But each of the speakers we invited to pre-record a talk that was shared two weeks in advance of the panel discussions so that their perspective, their insights could be shared and people could come to the live panel discussions 
already having heard the perspectives of the speakers and, and what they were going to offer so that the real-time engagement was more substantive and we made the most of our time together. To give you a sense of the scale, we had over the course of the, the three weeks that the, the event was, was scheduled from the first talks being going live to the end of the last real-time panel discussion. We had 892 um, people registered for the event. They registered for 8,100 talks um, there were wow. over 51 talks recorded, 16 hours of, of content generated for that. We reached with that content over 80,000 people across social media and had 2,500 roughly interactions with people. And so this was a pilot. We've never hosted a fully virtual event, but we think this is a model of a program that can help with the dialogue around food systems has really great potential. So I'll just say two, two things briefly um, about that in closing. One is that We've taken the content and we, we have a rapporteur who is producing the Food Dialogues report. And so taking the key insights and themes and risks and opportunities and so on, writing that up in a document. And that is a, a properly written 100-page report. There will be an executive summary. But um, that will become a really important document that is a snapshot of our food system and taking cognizance of the way that the COVID-19 pandemic has given us insight into our, our food system. And we will do a series of desk side briefings and presentations and so on to thought leaders and policymakers and others to try and get the findings of that report really stitched into our ongoing transformations within our food system um, and related policies and so on. And then the other thing that is important to share is that this is a program for other cities we think has really great potential. In many cities, particularly in the global south, the conversations around food systems and policy tends to be dominated by those who are in positions of power. So um, government officials and policymakers and leading politicians, you have big agribusiness, you have big retailers, but the voices of environmentalists or academics or local community-based organizations and civil society is often marginalized, um, whether it's intentional or not. A way of accelerating the participatory nature of discussion around a food system, we feel is this kind of a food dialogue where one can just invite people together. There is no other outcome that is prescribed other than to hear each other. And then where something like a food dialogues report might go depends on the context. It may be that all the people that register and attend an event like this, whether it's online or physically in person, those people may jump on a mailing list and suddenly you, you have a network of people who are interested in the food system and you can take that where it it needs to go. It could simply be a loose mailing list. It could become a network. It could become a community of practice. It could be a forum that may or may not have a legal structure, or it may ultimately lead to something that is established like a food policy council. So it's a way of bringing stakeholders together, accelerating the, the kind of connections between them and providing momentum to some kind of ongoing yeah, more sustainable engagement around the food system that may or may not have an institutional structure. So that's something that we're reaching out to different cities and different um, conveners of some of these networks of cities to see how that can work. You know, one of the partners in the Food Dialogues was ICLEI, and they've got a, a very good network of cities around the world, and, and there are others that we're connected to through the city of Cape Town. So that'll be some interesting ground for us to explore going forward with the Food Dialogues. It's great to hear how you've innovated this model, which really allows you to kind of capitalize on this moment of, of interest in, in, in these issues, but also, you know, really broadening and making sure that the dialogues are truly participatory and also reach new audiences as well. 
and we'll include information on the food dialogues and how to follow those uh, as well as to your other social media but thank you very much for your time today it's been really illuminating and also challenged my perceptions about what urban agriculture can, can achieve so I'm sure um, it will do the same for other listeners as well thank you very much great it's my pleasure thank you so much Vicky you can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.